The Old Testament reading is taken from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord. We are starting a new series this morning. You may have guessed. Um, you may have guessed the, what the series is about. Uh, the series is on the Ten Commandments, and I'm not sure what your reaction might be to that. Um, this series is going to take us all the way up to Palm Sunday, and so we're going to take one of the commandments um, each week and look at them. And when you think about the Ten Commandments, maybe your first reaction is like, "Well, that sounds kind of antiquated because they're really old, right?" And these are old laws. Uh, There's something you're familiar with, and yet if I put you on the spot and say, could you name them all right now, you might kind of um, shudder because you might have a hard time getting them all out. So why, why look at the Ten Commandments? Um, you know, recently in the news I heard another pastor say that basically um, these are irrelevant. In fact, much of the Old Testament is irrelevant now. Um, but we don't believe that to be true, and the reason we don't believe that to be true is Jesus didn't think that. In fact, from the Sermon on the Mount that uh, we heard read this morning by Jeff, uh, Jesus says that I came to fulfill these, but not to abolish them. In fact, that until heaven and earth pass away, that not the least stroke of a pen from the law is going to go away. So we ask the question, well, what are they, what, what are they for? Um, what do we do with, with this law? What do we do with these commandments? And as we go through this series... Each week, um, I may not say this explicitly, but you'll, if you hear me now, you'll hear it as we talk about each one of these. 
that there's really three things that is happening when we look at the law. And the first thing that we're seeing is, and I'm going to give them all an M word to help us remember them. And the first thing that we see is that the law is like a map. That it gives us a picture of what the designer and the maker of the universe thinks the way the world should run and the world should work. And so when we look at the law, we look at the heart of God, the designer of you and the designer of everything else. The one who spoke the world into being says, this is the way that things work most properly. And so we get a big picture. We get a map of what the world should look like. Um, But it also functions like a mirror. That when you look at the law, you see yourself more clearly. And I think that as we go through these, these that you've heard maybe um, your whole life, it may sound like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, do not murder. And then we start to think about what that actually means in my own life. And it, it functions like a mirror, that it, that it shows us where we're cracked, and it shows us where we're broken, and it shows us where we're sinful, and it shows us our needs. So that leads us to the third way, is that it acts like a mentor, or, or Paul called it a tutor. That the law then takes us by the hand, and it leads us to Jesus. And that's why I've named this series, uh, Ten Reasons That You Need Jesus, because I think as we go through this, um, we're going to see that there is no one, there's none of us that stand before God based on our own merit. There's none of us who look at these, maybe on the surface, Paul looked at these and said, basically, I think I've kind of kept all these until he got to the last one that said, do not covet. And there was, it was purely an internal thing that was happening to Paul where he realized if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known that I was a lawbreaker. I wouldn't have known that I needed Jesus. And so I think that what we'll see as we go through these commandments is how relevant they actually are to the way that we function in our life right now, and they will bring us to Jesus over and over and over again. So this morning, I had Helen read all of them to you, but we're just looking at at the first one. And it starts, I mean, this deserves a sermon um, in and of itself, and I'm not going to do it, but it starts with God saying to these people, who were given his law, I am the Lord your God. And I brought you out of Egypt, and I brought you out of bondage, and I brought you out of slavery. And this is always how God functions, is that he first declares what he has done for you, and then he tells you what he expects of you. That he tells you what is true about what he's done, that I've already moved towards you. I've already delivered you out of bondage and out of slavery. Now, out of my grace and out of my kindness and out of my goodness to you, I'm going to give you my law. And what it's going to do is it's going to show you your need for me. It's going to show you how life works. It's going to give you a picture of what freedom actually is because your heart is going to continue to turn away and to turn away and to turn away. And so this law will help shape and form you. And so before we go to it, we look at this first one, this first one where God simply says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second one where he says, don't make any idols and bow down to them. And the third one, he says, don't take my name in vain. He almost repeats himself in the first three commandments. Before we look at this very first one, let me pray and ask that he would help us. Father, in where we sit, it's not too difficult for us to say that you alone are God. 
and that you are the one true God. And we might not be persecuted for saying that or imprisoned for saying that. We may not even be laughed at for saying that. We might actually be more accepted for saying that. But what we'll see, I hope, this morning and what you'll show us is what your law always does is that it's very easy for us to say something with our mouth. But the thing that we actually love and trust might be really different. And so, Father, we thank you that your grace always wounds so that it may heal. Your law always exposes so that it might cover us and comfort us. That you send your light to shine into the dark places of our lives because you love us. And because you want us to be whole. And so pray, we pray, Father, that you would do that again this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a junior in college is when I first met a girl named Rosie. In fact, it was the first Rosie that I think I had ever met. And I thought, well, that's a unique name. And what I came to realize that, that was, uh, this was also a very unique individual. That I had not quite met anyone like Rosie. And if you don't know, Rosie is my wife now. So we'll go ahead and if you're visiting. Um, and so I wanted, um, I was intrigued by this girl and I wanted to get to know this girl better. I found myself, you know, at work thinking about her as ha- you know, these things happen and wondering how I can get to know her better and wondering how eventually this girl could be maybe my girlfriend and maybe one day my wife. And what I realized Um, This was at a time in my college career that I was not necessarily in the best, like, physical shape. What are you laughing at? Uh, (laughs) High school, I was a big runner. I, like, ran marathon. I was, like, really into it. I got my freshman year of college, as often happens, and I realized it's a lot easier to stop at Burger King for breakfast than it is to make food for myself. And I just kind of quit exercising you know, started eating just horribly, putting on some weight. And what, when I met Rosie, one of the things that intrigued me is that she just, like, loved to, to exercise and to be outside and to run. And so before you know it, I find myself running. And I find myself wanting to go run with her. And, and, and we're running more and more together. Until finally we get to the point where I'm thinking, I think I've got her hooked and I just quit running. (laughs) And you've seen this happen, right? I mean, you've watched this in your own life or if you've watched it with, with friends and it's humorous to watch from a distance that you see someone get enamored by someone else and then they like fall off the face of the earth because they spend all of their time with that person. And then when they resurface, they have like a whole new set of hobbies, and a whole new set of interests. And they actually start to like look like the other person in some way. Uh, my roommate in college, was he ate the most horrific things I've ever seen. Like if you fed your children what he ate in college, DHS would show up at your house. And he started dating a girl who was like a really good cook. And the next thing you know, he is a foodie. Like, he is a food snob to this day in a glorious way. Like, he loves good food. And I watched him eat like... This was one of the things he ate, peanut butter, jelly, and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> right? We got in a huge argument one day because I said that's foul, and he said, no, it's really tasty. I've never tried it. Uh, 
what, what we intuitively know is that the thing that we, we, we love the most, the thing that like becomes the center of our existence and the center of our life is something that changes us. That it's inevitable. That we start to become more like it. That, that the more we fall in love with something, the more it dictates what our life is like. And this is really what worship is. That worship is, is when we love and adore something to such an extent that it begins to transform us. And so we come to this first of God's laws, this first commandment that he gives his people. I just brought you out of slavery and brought you and delivered you out of bondage. And he tells them this. I am the only true God. Do not pin any other gods before me. And and so I ask us this question this morning. What is at the center of your life? What is at the very core of your life? That's really our question this morning. And the thing is, it sounds like such a simple question with such a simple answer if you're one who adheres maybe to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He is at the center of my life. But I don't think it's that simple. And if we don't grasp the depth of this first commandment, what we're going to find is that the rest of them are pointless. That every single one of these commandments flows out of this first commandment. Every one is rooted, every other commandment is rooted first and foremost in what you worship. In what is at the very center of your life and the thing that you love the most. So, for example, you don't just lie for no reason. When we lie and when we find ourselves lying, What we're trying to do is to protect the thing that we love the most in our life. And we think by lying that we will guard that thing, that thing that we think makes our life complete. That thing is the thing that we worship. We don't commit adultery just because one day we're bored and we decide that's something that um, maybe we should try. We commit adultery because we think that we might find a glimmer of love in a way that transforms us. That, that we might be embraced and seen in such a way that it feels almost like an entrance back into the garden where we were naked and unashamed. We don't gossip because we don't have anything better to do. We gossip because we love to discuss the little failings of other people so that we might feel better and more important ourselves. All sin is rooted, first and foremost, in false worship, in breaking this first commandment. So I'm going to ask three questions, and they're along the lines of what I explained earlier of being a map and a mirror and a mentor. And the three questions are this, why only one God? What do I really worship? And how does this lead me to Jesus? Why only one God? What do I really worship? And how does this lead me to Jesus? I want to start looking at the the big picture that I said the law is like a map. And this is such a short little commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But it gives you a picture of the way that the universe actually works. That there is one God. And he is seated on his throne. He is above the circle of the earth. And so the question is, why does God make worship, worship of himself central to human flourishing? Because that's what he's saying. 
that's central to humanity functioning as the way that it should function, central to humans flourishing in the world, is that first and foremost, they worship me over and above everything else. And I know that the question that arises in some of our minds is this. Well, is God a narcissist? Does he really think that he's that important? I mean, good grief, God wants us to worship him alone. Does he think he's the center of the universe or something? Yes, he does. Because he is. And in the second commandment, as we'll look at next week, he even says that he is a God who is jealous for our love. And we'll talk about that, what that means. But one of the effects of sin is that we live with this delusion that, that somehow we are in control or we can be in control of our lives. And what our God who loves us, who brings us out of bondage and brings us out of slavery, the one who loves us, he sees what we're blind to is that we in our sinful nature simply will grasp onto almost anything that we think will make our lives more manageable, more comfortable, more peaceful, that will get us what we need, that we think we'll grasp onto almost anything that we think will make our life flourish. But instead of bringing us freedom, what he knows, and this is why he starts with this, is that they only lead to more enslavement. That God loves us enough to tell us this, you shall have no other God before me, because if you have another God that you put in the center of your life before me, it will become a cruel taskmaster that will enslave you and will not lead you out of bondage, will lead you into further bondage. You see, the big picture is that God, in his kindness, tells you the first thing that you have to remember is me. The first thing that you have to remember is that I made you, that I created you, that I love you, that I designed you, that I brought you out of slavery. And if you worship anything else other than me, I love you enough to tell you it will eat you alive. And we all know what that's like, right? You may not have thought of it that way before, of the fact that I might become sort of addicted to the way that I look, becoming something else that I worship. But that's exactly what God's talking about. He's talking about things that he made, things that are good. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that we exchange a truth for a lie and we worship the creation rather than the creator. The creation are things that God made. And so when we take something that God made and we put it in the center of our life because we think that us bowing down to it will bring us what we need, we're engaging in false worship. And you know how it begins to enslave you. So if we bow down to worship, I mean, we bow down to beauty or to to thinness or to power or to our education, our intellect, our financial security, the voice that becomes ringing out of the mouth of that false god is this. Are you really attractive enough? Are you sure that that degree is enough? Are you sure that you're important enough in your job? Do enough people respect you? Are you sure that your bank account is in such a place and that you can maintain it in that place where you will feel at ease and you will feel at peace and you start to feel the crushing weight of a false God that says, as you bow down to me, I will make sure that it is never enough. The actor Jim Carrey 
said a few years ago, and Jim Carrey, whether you like his movies or not, um, he's succeeded, right? He's done well. He's, um, he's famous. He's a celebrity. And he said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. I think everyone should get rich. He's saying sitting in that position that everyone should get the thing that they're actually dreaming of. What he's saying is the thing that is at the center of your life, the thing that you actually think is going to bring you the good life, that is going to make it what you think is good. I want you to actually get it, he says, and realize that it's not actually the answer. And so God instead invites you into freedom. He invites you into freedom. He invites you into the freedom of his love. He's saying to worship me since I designed you and created you. To put me in the center of your life is actually where freedom is found. It's actually where love is found. And every other false god you bow down to will not forgive you when you fail them. They will only ask more of you and demand more. I was trying to think of a way... Um, to more vividly illustrate that. And I kept thinking about this interview that I read a number of years ago. And I'm not trying to pick on this man, although part of my heart wants to pick on him. Um, But his words, because the, the man is Tom Brady. Now, there's some in the room who really aren't into football, and they think that's one of the Bradys from the Brady family. It's not. Tom Brady, if you don't know who he is, is, you know, one of the most winning quarterbacks in the NFL, the New England Patriots. He's on his way next weekend to play in the Super Bowl again. I believe if he wins this, it'll be his sixth one to win. His net worth is $180 million, and he's married to a supermodel. So, like, there's a lot of, like, young boys whose dream is to be Tom Brady, right? I mean, $180 million net worth, married to a super model, multiple winner of the Super Bowl. And this is what he said. In this interview, he said, why do I have at this point three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. And the interviewer said, well, then what's the answer? And he said, I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think that there are a lot of other parts of me that I'm trying to find right now. And the interviewer said, which one of the rings do you like the best? What's your favorite ring? And Brady answered, My favorite ring? I've always said my favorite ring is the next one. The next one will be the best one. What does God, why does God say, you shall have no other gods before me? Because it's true that there is no other God. That he is the one true God. And he says, no other gods before me because anything else that you erect in your life that you think is going to do it for you. He just says, look around in the world at the people who have gotten everything that they think will fulfill them. And they will all tell you at one point or another that it is not enough. 
Every other God will eat you alive. It's actually God's love that drives his law. It's his love to tell us this. And so how do we know then what we really worship? Because we all have like what I would call these functional gods in our life, things that we serve, hoping that they'll give us what we want and we need. And how do we know what these things are? And that's really my second question. What do you really worship? When we look at the law, it becomes like a mirror where we have to ask that question ourselves. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the question that should, we should ask ourselves in return is, do I? Do I? It's not just a map showing us what is good. It's a mirror showing us where we're broken. And here's the thing. The question isn't, what do you believe? Because I imagine the bulk majority of this room will say in return, I believe in God and Jesus. The question is, what are you actually living for? What actually dictates your life? And so how do, we, how do we get at that, maybe in our own hearts? And traditionally, Christians have asked a few questions that help us to uncover what are some of these functional gods in our life. Some of these, as we'll think about next week, idols in our life. And one of those questions is simply this. What do you love? What do you actually love? Um, you know, as Jesus stood with Peter on that Sure, after Peter had wrecked his life and denied Jesus and had gone back to fishing, Jesus asked him this question, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And what he's getting at is Peter would have said before, of course I love you, I love you, I'm following you, I've I've dropped my nets and I'm doing everything for you. But what Peter now knew about himself was he loved a lot of what he got out of being around Jesus more than he loved Jesus. And Jesus was kind enough to expose that in him, to expose his pride so that Jesus comes back and asks him again, do you love me? And I think Peter, with all honesty, could actually say, yeah, I really do. I thought I did before, but I really do now. And so for us, the question, what, what, do you, what do you really love? What do you honor above all else? When your mind starts to roam, what does it roam to? When you begin to picture what the good life looks like for you, what does it look like? When you follow the trail of your, your credit card bill or your checkbook or your banking account, where does it lead you? When you get a little bit of extra money, what do you spend it on? This is why Jesus, as we did in the fall, Jesus, you know, we saw that he talked a lot about money because our money tells us a lot about what we actually trust and love. And if you follow those trails, what you'll surely find is that we can confess God with our mouths. But when we ask ourselves what we actually love, we start to find that our affections are really fractured. And our, and our fractured affections help us to see why our lives all often feel fractured. Does your life feel fractured this morning? God is saying to you, I want you to pay attention to this. It's fractured for a reason. Because your affections are very fractured. We, you've elevated to something in your life to a position that can never fill. And it, here's the truth. That applies to things that are good, as I said. 
What does that mean? Well, if I love my spouse more than God, and if her happiness is at the center of my life, it becomes enslaving to me, and it masters me. You know what, parents out there, that applies to you as well. If the happiness and wholeness of your children is the thing that is dictating your life, it will become a cruel taskmaster and enslave you. No spouse can fill it. No child can fill it. No amount of money can fill it. No house can fill it. Another way we can ask this question is then, well, what do you trust? What do you love? But then, like, what do you, what do you trust? And this is a good one for us because we are all control freaks, right? You, you don't even want to laugh at the fact that you're a control freak because it's too hard to hear that we are all control freaks. And what, so what do you put your weight upon? What do you lean into? What do you look to to uphold your life? We usually trust in the thing that's, that's most accessible to us and most tangible to us, the thing that maybe we're even most gifted in to get us to the place that we want to be. Our hearts rest in whatever ability it is we think will bring us more stability. And we can find a million things to trust in. Most of them good things. But they, and while they're good things, they, make, they are not good at being the main thing. None of them are sufficient. You see, the tricky thing about a false god is that it may very well be the thing that everyone else praises you about. You are just so capable. Your house is always spotless. You are just so smart and well-educated. You're such a wonderful parent. Your children are so well-behaved. And so the next question becomes maybe then, well, what devastates you? What devastates you? What infuriates you? What is the thing when it is taken away or you can no longer control it and manage it absolutely makes you come unhinged? All right, I've got a funny illustration of this. Um, Anybody out here ever heard of the show called The Office before? Good. All right. Yeah. Uh, Lots of Office fans, I'm sure, in the room. If you haven't, just take it out for a second. But um, there's a point in The Office where, who I would call the main character, um, Steve Carell, Michael Scott, leaves the show, right? It's a hard thing to pull off when somebody leaves the show, and everyone said the show kind of declined when Michael Scott left. Well, they replaced him at first, if you remember this, with Will Ferrell. And like, if I just look at Will Ferrell, like, he doesn't have to do anything. He just stand there. I'm going to start laughing. And he, he plays the new boss of the office, D'Angelo Vickers. And so when he comes into the office as the new boss, everybody in the office wants to please him and everybody wants to get him on their side. And so Andy, who sees himself as the funny guy and sees him as, himself as the entertainer and who is obviously massively insecure tries to win over D'Angelo. And so one day, D'Angelo says to him, Andy, make me laugh. And Andy goes to absurd lengths to try to make D'Angelo laugh. I mean, at some one point, he's like sticking his hand in a toaster and turning it on. He's pouring hot coffee on his lap, and nothing works. He cannot make this man laugh, and he comes unhinged. He's utterly crushed. 
the way he, he, he had validity of his existence was through his ability to entertain and win other people through it. And when that was taken away, he was utterly lost. You see, we're capable of believing one thing, but loving and trusting in something entirely different. The first law not only tells us what's best for us, it shows us a picture, it reminds us, and and you have to keep doing this work on your own, but it reminds us of how deceptive our hearts can actually be. And so the, the last question is this, then, then what, how does this lead me then to Jesus? And what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Well, one, um, at one point when I was, before I was married, I had this job at a landscape nursery and I had to get up really early in the morning. I lived with a bunch of guys and um, I had to be there before sunrise, and I would get up every morning, and I would do the same thing. I would make myself some eggs in the dark. I would quietly leave the house. I would drive to the Exxon station that was on my way to work. I would go in there. I'd get some horrible, horrible coffee, and I'd do this like clockwork every morning, and I would go, and I would talk with the same clerk was always there, and we had this banter, you know. We kind of joked with one another, And one morning, I go in there, and I get my horrible coffee, and I go to the counter, and I start my kind of banter with him, and he just kind of stares at me in, like, a really weird way. And I'm like, what is wrong? I didn't say anything. I just kind of purchased my coffee and left, and I'm like, maybe he's just having a bad day. And as I'm driving to work, I happen to glance in my rearview mirror, and I notice I had this huge chunk of egg (laughs) on my face. I had literally had egg on my face. And I was embarrassed, but, you know, it would have been absurd at that point as I looked in the mirror and saw the egg on my face to lean up to the mirror and to use the mirror in order to scrape the egg off my face. Because the mirror showed me what was wrong, but the mirror really couldn't fix the problem. And this is the way that the law is as well. So to simply go, I'll try harder to love and trust God. The year 2019 is the year that I will love God more than any other thing. It's okay to say that. I hope that you do. But what often happens is that we might appear to succeed, at least by our own definition of what it means to really love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, for a period. And then we start to become proud of it. And then we realize that in the end, we're actually just worshiping our own ability to keep this law. And so here's the thing. When you really ask yourself the hard question about what you worship, what it's going to do is it's going to drive you to despair. You are going to, if you really do the work of looking at yourself, you will despair of yourself. Because what you will find is that what I did not need was a few, few rules that I thought I could keep. What I got instead from God is one rule here at the beginning that showed me that I could never do this. I could never meet his standard. I can never love the Lord my God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength and my neighbor as myself at every moment. And it will leave you feeling helpless. And here's the good news. When you get to the point where you feel helpless, you're in a good place. 
When you get to the point when you're starting to despair of your ability to find one more false god who's going to make your life work the way that you think it should work, then you're a good place to lay down that god and be found by Jesus. And that might happen for the first time today, but for those of us who've been found by Jesus, what we actually know is that happens to us over and over and over and over again every day. Because the truth is, when we lay down one, our heart starts reaching for another until we become so exhausted that we hear again the voice of Jesus who says this, the one true God comes to earth and looks at tired, despairing, helpless people who have run away from him and worshiped all sorts of other kind of idols. And he says, come unto me, all you who are weary, all you who are tired of yourself, all you who have tried everything else to make it work and you can't make it work, all you who are despairing of yourself and feeling helpless, and I will give you rest. For my yoke, it ain't easy. I mean, it is easy. It is easy. And it is light. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus entered the mess. He entered the chaos so that he might be the new Adam who perfectly loved the Father at every moment, who didn't doubt his goodness and say, I'll do it my way. But he said, nope, not my way. I will trust you, even as I drink this bitter cup. And when we see that, what we see, as Tim Keller once said, When we see what Jesus has done for us, we'll finally understand why God's salvation does not require us to do some great thing. And isn't it the thought that I must, in and of myself, do some great thing that leads me to chase other gods to begin with? Friends, you've been set free from that. And what happens when we get a glimpse of the beauty of the grace that Jesus actually offers and secures for us? by adopting us into his family for all of eternity through nothing that I have done in my own merit, but purely out of his goodness and grace through his atonement that is made on my behalf, what happens when I begin to grasp that is I start to worship. I worship him. I want to be transformed by him. And the other gods start to look as pitiful as they really are. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, only you can do this work in us. And we thank you that your law, it shows us your heart. It shows us and tells us the truth. It exposes us, even those of us who have been good little boys and girls for most of our life and gone to church and have mostly done very good things, um, that your law shows us that the disease goes far deeper than we ever realized. Father, as we come to this table this morning, what we thank you for is that you have not left us there, but you have met us in our bondage, you have met us in our misery, and in our sin, and our despair, and our helplessness, and you have secured salvation for us. So Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, it's in his name that we pray, amen.